And she liked this one. I said, no, those are ours. This was a candy ahead. <laughs> How does the Easter Bunny stay healthy? Eating chocolate. <laughs> Popper size. Aerobics. <laughs> <laughs> what proof is there that carrots are good for the eyes? Because you never see a rabbit without glasses. Wearing glasses, <laughs> yep. How do you make Easter preparations go faster? You hop to it. You uh, use the express lane. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, before we get started, I've got a wrong thing. I've got a testimony. It's pretty incredible. Uh, well, it's not mine personally, but I've been uh, mentoring this lady for a while and um, going through a divorce. Uh, it's good that she's going through a divorce. It's one of the rare occasions. I'm like, yeah, you need to probably get out, and she is. Uh, anyway, it's one of those situations where... Um, like it can happen in church situations. It can happen in, you know, relationships where you don't recognize how controlling and abusive the situation is until you're out. And so then, you know, when people are getting out, the Lord will actually take them through a journey of where they start recognizing those things. They start uh, being obedient to the Lord versus being manipulated and controlled by the individual. Uh, and there's like a series of qualifications they actually go through where the Lord's like, are you going to listen to me? Are you going to listen to uh, your voice or someone else's voice? And it requires a lot of patience. And uh, anyway, she's you know been doing what the Lord has been wanting to do. Well, <clears throat> they had just moved into this house and moving with this person her uh, soon-to-be ex-husband was like torture. I mean, the kids are traumatized. It's very um, anger-filled, controlling-filled, condemnation-filled. And so because of that, you know, she didn't really want to move the kids again. But the problem was he owns the house. It's in her name. It's not, or his name. It's not in hers. And so he has no boundaries. Whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. And that means showing up at the house whenever he wants to do laundry, even though he said she can stay there and he'll pay for the mortgage and he lives somewhere else. So it's just months and months of this. And I told her, I said, you know, you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to move. You, you either need to buy the house or you need to find another house because he's never going to stop. You've got to put as much separation between you and him. He will never stop taking advantage of the situation. He'll lord it over your, you know, over you guys. It's his house. He can come whenever he wants blah, blah. So finally, they had had a what she had deemed a good discussion. And he agreed that he wasn't respecting boundaries. He would do better, etc. And then not even, I think, 24 hours later, he was at the house to do his laundry. And I said, well, I said, I think what you're not understanding is that a person that is demonized like this and in delusion, uh, there's no reasoning with them. They, they don't think like you do. You think that you can reason and come to conclusions and agreements, but they don't think that way. So it's like King David. It took King David a while to understand that his father-in-law was going to kill him. There was no reasoning. There was no getting around that. He was going to kill him 
And David, you see, kept trying to reason with him like, I've not done anything wrong. I could have killed you right there, but I didn't kill you. And then Saul would say, you're more, more righteous than I am. He would show remorse. And then he would walk away, and then guess what he would do? He would turn around and try to kill him again because there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Mm -hmm. So I said, that's what you're in. This is a situation you're in, and it's not going to stop, so you need to move. And the lawyer, her lawyer had even said, you're stupid to keep living there, and you need to get out. Mm -hmm. So her lawyer is obviously a D. <laughs> so anyway, so she agreed. Well, here's a testimony. So I didn't talk to her last week because I uh, had to work and was really busy. And so this week she said, I'm very excited to talk to you because we have an amazing testimony. Now she lives in the Springs. So the housing market, when she contacted a, uh, well, first she was like, oh, I don't want to rent. I want to buy. And I said, well, here's the thing. It, it's a myth that your house is an asset. Your house is never an asset unless it's making you money. Because the very definition of an asset is that it makes you money. So if money is having to go out, it's not an asset. Now, when you sell it, if it makes you money, then you've now sold it. Now you've made a profit. But as long as it's costing you money, it's not an asset. I said, so yes, I agree with you. I think that buying a house can be a better investment if you're going to sell it. If not, you just overpay for a house, right? Right. So I told her, I said, sometimes rent is the option. And... For you, not having a husband to do repairs and things like that, that would probably be a good idea. And then later allow Holy Spirit to get you a house if that's what you really want that you own. And she said, you know, I never thought about it like that. So she contacts a, a, a real estate agent. She's, you know, looking online. The real estate agent said, okay, we don't have low inventory. We have no inventory. People are buying land to build and renting while they're building because there are no houses. Mm -hmm. So the problem is, number one, it's a hot market anyway. Number two, Amazon is coming in. Number three, it's the time of year where the military, they're coming in as well. So there's this big shift. And so she's like, okay. And, you know, prices are outrageous because of that. So anyway, she prays. She sees this house. She goes there, and her friend's like, well, can I go? And she really didn't want her friend to go. She just wanted to go, but her friend really wanted her to go, or wanted to. And she's like, yeah, sure, absolutely. And so they go and look at this house. Well, she can feel Holy Spirit in the house. She, you know, she sees scriptures on the walls. She's like, this is my home. I, I know this is my home. And... Then she's thinking, you know, I've got a bankruptcy in my past. I'm a single mother, one income, going through a divorce. The chances of me getting this house are zero. Uh, there's like one person after another going to see the house. She can't compete on that level. Anyway, her friend was in there kind of telling them a little bit of the situation because she had blurted out that she's getting a divorce. And then she's like, I probably shouldn't have done that, you know. Anyway, so long story short, she's like, Father, I need you to be my husband. Other people, they can send their husbands to look at houses while they look at some of the houses. And they can tag team. They can make it happen. It's just me. I, I need you to be my husband and get me this house. So she goes to work, and she's in appointments all day. She gets done. One of her other friends, who's also a realtor, who knows other ladies, said, Hey, the owners of that house have been calling you. 
you need to get in touch with them immediately. And she's like, huh. So she calls them, and the lady says, this house is yours. And she's like, what? And she said, this house is yours. We need you to fill out an application ASAP, and this is your house. And she's like, oh, okay. So she hangs up the phone, and she does the application, and then she sends a text. And I did the same thing, too, when, I, when she read me the text. But she sends a text like, thank you so much. This is an answer to prayer. You know, me and the kids are so excited, blah, blah, blah. And the lady says, well, your husband was relentless. So then when she said that, I'm all, why is her ex why is he involved? You know, like, why, why is her ex-husband all talking to these people? Like, what do you mean relentless? You know, I, I was like, I immediately went to the earthly husband. And so then she texted, oh, I didn't know y'all knew each other. Because she thought it was her soon-to-be ex-husband, too. And then, the, and then all of a sudden, she's like, oh, it's God. I had said he needs to be my, my husband. So she connected the dots. I'm like, oh, of course. Yeah, that's what it means. Anyway, so, so she, she goes, oh, my gosh. And so she told her about the prayer. She says, oh, yeah, from the moment y'all left, Holy Spirit was like, this house is hers, this house is hers, this house is hers, this house is hers, this house is hers. She said so much so that I had a dream that all of you were living in this house. And so move in May 15th. Isn't that neat? So anyway, I just, but, and there was something else I can't remember. I was trying to remember it last night to tell Mike, but there was something else that occurred that was just unbelievable tied to this house. And so I told her, I said, well, you know, I hate to be the one to say I told you so. <laughs> but, you know, you when you're in those situations, the best thing you can do is trust God. And, and you know, get away. And she did. And so the Lord, I told her, I said, He's not just giving you a kiss from heaven. He is doing backflips to help you understand that He is your husband. I mean, we had to recap, like, the chances of her getting that property just in the natural, not to mention her financial history. Like if me and Mike were renting and we see someone with a bankruptcy and they're going through a divorce, other than Holy Spirit, we'd probably be like, yeah, I don't think so. You know? And so it had to be God. Anyway, I just wanted to share that testimony because I thought it was really cool. But your husband was relentless. And here we are. Huh? What? Why is he talking to her? <laughs> Sometimes we're a little slow on the draw, you know what I mean? But but yeah, I wanted her, you know, I told her, I said, the thing is, is that, you know, she has been, when, when people have been given her counsel, it takes her a little bit of time. But she listens and she acts on it and she's been having phenomenal results. And, and I told her, I said, here's what you're learning, and this is so important. You're learning that there is no voice or reasoning to listen to other than Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. You can go back and forth. Well, this is a bad time to do this. Or what if this happens to so-and-so? Or, you know, maybe they need blah, blah, blah. Or whatever it is. No, none of that matters. They can be things that maybe you have in your mind. But when it comes to what you're supposed to do, there is one voice only that matters. You ask Holy Ghost. That's it. And if you live your life that way and you follow His instructions, you have incredible results where you thought something like you're dreading it and you just, I don't want to move, I don't want to do this, I don't want to put the kids through that. All of those things were irrelevant. When you get in Holy Spirit's lane, 
Now, you're not just moving. He does something that's so spectacular that you'll never forget it. It's never without excitement nor adventure to follow Holy Ghost. It's amazing. So anyway, uh, she, I'm, I'm really proud of her. I'm very proud of her. So, and she's proud of herself. That's she needs to be. And she needs yeah. to be. And it was funny, right after she's like, you know, people are offering to help me move, and I just feel bad. And I was like, stop. I said, you asked for him to be your husband, and it could be that he's sending you help. That's right. And you need to let your ego get out of the way. And we processed through that. And I said, you know, I'm very grateful when we moved into our home. Uh, I said, the hub peeps, they just came alongside so much so that even though Mike and G had to be out of town. They had us moved in one day. Two houses. I said, I'll never forget that. That was the best thing ever. I said, so don't let your ego for not being wanting to be that person that's needed help during this difficult time. Because I promise when you get to the end of your difficult time, you're going to be in a position to help others. You know, and do the things you want to do. I told somebody one time, I said, don't rob somebody else mm-hmm. of what they want to give. Right. Their blessing, too. And especially when they're volunteering. Right. It's not like she's going around asking people. They're volunteering. We are going to help you move. I mean, they see God mm-hmm. all in this, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, again, it is very hard for a woman to get away from a man like mm-hmm. that. And I, just the fact she's doing I am so proud of her because he wasn't physically abusive, but he was definitely... Um, gaslighting, emotional abuse, things like that. And a lot of women don't even see that, and they will stay, you know. And so the fact that she's getting out, I'm just really, really proud of her. But anyway, that might ruffle some religious people feathers, but don't care as far as <laughs> divorcing. Sometimes it is the only way. Uh, okay, so Hebrews 6.10. God is not unfair. Now, I typically don't do, you know, a normal Easter message because, you know, like we discussed, Easter's not really um, about Jesus Christ resurrecting, but we can definitely celebrate His resurrection every day. Um, So I'm just going to continue as is. We're going to go on down, uh, you know, Hebrews. And, of course, last week about can you lose your salvation, um, I think is a very key, very important message that people need to understand. And uh, uh, out of that can sometimes come the question, well, is that fair? You know, it's like, well, if you spend your whole life, 30 years building a church or building a ministry that's helped millions and millions of people, and then you lose your salvation, is that fair? Yeah, actually. Uh, Because God doesn't base whether you go to heaven or not on your good works. (laughs) He never will. It's even post-Christianity. Your good works are an outflow of faith. You know, your good works are an outflow of love. Therefore, if the good works are marred by habitual practice of sin, or if they're marred by unbelief that is demonstrated in disobedience in a continual habitual way, uh, then what that tells him is you no longer love him. Right? And so, he's fair in all regards. And so, What Paul does is he talks about, you know, um, those that can lose their salvation. And then he says in verse 10 of the Passion Translation, for God, the faithful one. Now that's important. He's faithful even if you're not. We divorce him. He doesn't divorce us. So if he says, 
that if you come to me and say, Lord, we did this in your name and we prophesied your name and blah, blah, and you continuously practice sin, and he says, I never knew you, uh, then what happens is he will keep his word and you will not make it to heaven. And so he's faithful and he is not unfair. How can we forget the beautiful work you have done for him? He remembers the love you demonstrate as you continually serve his beloved ones for the glory of his name. Okay, now this is an interesting verse because, again, I like to remind ourselves of the fact that he's talking to Christians that face death because of their faith. You know, we don't. Um, he's talking to Christians that they can no longer conduct business to feed their families in their own community of Jewish people because they are excommunicated. So when you get excommunicated, you not only lose your family in the community sense, but you also lose your ability to provide for yourself and do business with them. So the only places they could go is to the Roman Empire. Well, you could imagine trying to compete as a Jew in the Roman Empire. Okay, so it, they were definitely facing some definite problems. And uh, he addresses uh, two things that I think today need to be understood as well. The first is that God is not unfair. It's literally God is not evil in the Aramaic. You would think that would go without saying. But you can watch any TV show. You can listen to the majority of believers out there. And they will think that God puts bad stuff on people. Right? And so that right there is actually thinking that he's evil. Now, can God... Uh, execute his judgment and do away with people absolutely but he's not unfair so when you think that God is unfair is when you attribute to God things that are the devil's work that is thinking he's evil you think he's evil when you think he's doing the very thing that he came to destroy which is poverty sickness disease mental uh, disorders things like that if you think he does that, then you think he is evil. Because it says that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are those things because they did not exist pre-fall. So, whenever you attribute to him a work that is not his, then you are saying that he is evil. Now, I think it is worthy to ask yourself when you get sick, is God doing this to you? If you think that, then you think he's unfair. So the next time your body is facing a challenge, take check of your thoughts. Do you think he did this? Here's another more subtle way you think he might do it. Well, I must have done something wrong. That's why I'm sick. Well, follow that right to the, its entire conclusion. So that means that you think that because you did something wrong, God allowed this on you as a way to teach you or to punish you. You see what I mean? We have these weird things <coughs> that we think and that we believe that is not faith in the it is finished. So the way you look at it, and we've all done this, I've done it, the way you look at it is if your body is attacked, it's not, oh, I must have opened the door, oh, I must have done something, or oh, blah, 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 blah. It is it doesn't matter if I did something, the blood of Jesus purchased my healing. 
it washes away all unrighteousness. Father, if I did in any way open the door to this, please show me. But I trust the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how you handle it. He's your advocate. He's your defense attorney. He's not the one trying to put you in jail. He's the one that bailed you out. So once you shift your gear to the idea that God is good all of the time, then a lot of the things the enemy got away with in the past, he can no longer get away with now, right? Because you have a correct paradigm. You need to have a plumb line. And so be alert to those subtle ways of where maybe you're attributing to the Lord something that is unfair or that he is unfair. So this type of thinking is a wrong perception of who God is. It's a wrong perception of how you relate to him, which is performance-based. And it's also a wrong perception of how the kingdom works. These are all things that need to be renewed in our thinking and are not uncommon. But if you've been a Christian for 20 plus years and you're still thinking that way, you got some work to do. And you need to get it done. Because here's the thing. According to Matthew 24, in the last days, many their love will grow cold. Why? Because they'll become offended. What are they going to become offended at? Everything that's going on around them. You know, some are going to be offended because they think God shouldn't allow certain things. Well, that whole allow thing is a wrong doctrine anyway. But you got some that will be like, hey, I thought we were supposed to be raptured out of here by now. They're going to be offended. There's so many things that are going to go down, as we've seen, that if we're not centered in the reality that God is good all of the time, then we can even get to a point where we become offended with Him. Like, have you ever become offended that He didn't answer your prayer in the time you thought or how you thought He should? Not only is that pride, but it's also, again, attributing to Him something that's unfair. I can guarantee you that if it's taken too long, the problem is not Him, or your prayer is the problem, or you think you've got the idea of how it should go, and He is a God that sees all. And maybe he actually wants to deal with the thing that's in your heart that's making you offended at how long it takes. Well, and I think Easter is the perfect time. Do you think that they were heartbroken after he's died? Absolutely. I mean, you know, they were devastated. Mm -hmm. The disciples were. Mm -hmm. And because that's not the way they had envisioned that it was going to go. And Peter got mm. offended. And the only reason they were devastated is because they didn't believe the words he said. I didn't have any understanding. Yeah, because yeah. they weren't born again yet. Mm. Right. We have no excuse. Right. You know? So, yeah, these, these mm. things and how we see God, it has to be centered in that. You know, when we asked him, what are the two things that we need to successfully take a city. It was your identity in Christ, which most have no idea, really. I mean, you may have a semblance, but when you really start diving into it, it's a whole new ball game. But the other thing is God is good all the time. It just doesn't matter. So these are things that we need to have as foundational cornerstones, blocks of our foundation. Now, uh, unfortunately, I didn't bring my English Standard version, but I've got it here in my notes. So we're going to go into the Old Testament. And uh, I want to talk about navigating uh, the new normal, okay? And, you know, I was fascinated. I started reading a book on the Founding Fathers. And I was telling Mike, like, I can actually see why people do not like Christopher Columbus. I can see why 
it can be a hot button topic when it comes to Christianity and government because let me tell you something. History very clearly shows, and this isn't like a skewed history. It's uh, a guy that he's a believer, but the stuff the Puritans did. He's a Jewish believer. The stuff, who? Christopher Columbus. He's oh, Jewish yeah, believer. but the things that they believed <clears throat> and they did to people, yes. uh, out of, in the name of religion, was uh, atrocious. And so the governmental leaders were like, we can't have this. And so it was a hundred plus years of seeing this that they decided, hey, we got to do something. And so the reason that occurred, and we're going to see this with the Israelites, is it's really hard for people that have been enslaved to become rulers. And so you have people that came to this country that were enslaved to religion that you actually could die if you didn't believe with the Church of England or the Catholic Church, stuff like that. They had entire wars over religion. The reason they went in and invaded Jerusalem is they felt that was the way to bring the end of the world in 1642. So they were going to go after the Muslims and the Jews and make it completely Christian. So there's a lot of atrocities that came not from Christians, but from religion. So they come out of that environment of control and they bring it to this country. So the main job that Holy Spirit's going to do in us is to reveal every single slave mentality. Every single bondage and thought pattern we carried from the old into the new, he is going to ruthlessly go after it. Because once that's accomplished, where? According to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, the job of the uh, fivefold ministers is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry until we all come to a unity of faith and to the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. No longer being tossed to and fro, right, by the ways of different doctrines. Okay, so there will be a point where you have a mature <coughs> ecclesia that is living according to the full stature of Jesus Christ, and only then can he return. So the whole journey and process is coming into agreement with who he says you are, allowing him to get rid of all the slave mentalities that hold you back, and the faster we cooperate with him, <laughs> the quicker we'll get there. Right? We don't need to coddle these, these mindsets. So I want to start with Exodus 14, 1-4. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back, interesting, and encamp in front, in front of some weird name, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. In other words, you're going to face basically your obstacle. See, that's what he's doing. He's getting them trapped. I don't know if y'all ever noticed this, but he's guiding the Israelites to face their challenge, he's going to get the, excuse me, uh, basically surrounded by water and by the devil. Okay? On purpose. So the next time you're in something and you're like, man, this is terrible. Well, probably what's happening is he wants you to face your obstacle and part the waters. You know, use your authority. So he on purposely gets them in a trap. Because, and listen to this, verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. In other words, they don't have a GPS. So I will harden <laughs> Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
and they did so. Now, he bought it. See? He, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh had no chance. That's how unfair God is. Well, let me tell you the original language of both the Hebrew and the Greek. Here's what happened. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. So God took advantage of it to serve his purposes. Now that may offend so oh God took advantage. Yes, he took advantage of it. If you're gonna be an idiot, then see here's the thing. You'll either be used by God one way or another. By use, I don't mean use and then throw thrown away. I mean if you hinder his purposes, he will then use you to actually accelerate them for the wrong side. So you can either submit, it's like that word by Chris Volatin. Where it's like God was a mighty man. Do you remember hearing that word? He was like a mighty man. And it was like, get out of my way. And those that didn't get out of his way, he flung to the side. And then he got to Chris Volatin and he's looking at him. He's like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'm getting out of the way. There are times in history where God steps down and your heart condition that you've been working on, good or bad, for all those years will either help you or hurt you. Because the fear of the Lord is centered in the fact that He is God and He is God alone, right? And so we are in one of those epoch times, those Kairos epoch times, where He's like, get out of my way. And so the people of God would be very wise to get out of His way. Let Him do what He wants to do, cooperate with Him, because then you will be positioned to birth a nation, right? So it's a very important concept. So then in verse 10 of Exodus 14, it says, When Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel, they lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, but they said to Moses. Isn't that funny? They cried out to the Lord, but they turned to Moses. <laughs> You're the one that got us in this mess. You better get us out. <laughs> and so he said, now listen to what they told him. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What are they doing? What, what, what's happening? They're assigning blame for one thing. Absolutely Compl assigning blame. Complaining. And Complaining. Yes, and unbelief in what God said he'd do. And they're also looking at their past bondage of which the only... Re they are there because God answered their prayers. <laughs> Have you ever been in that? <laughs> Where you pray and then all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, I did not sign up for this. And the Holy Spirit's like, actually, you did. Remember two months ago when you asked for this? Surprise! Right? That's, that's what happens. They are there because they ask God to deliver them. Sometimes we're a little shocked when we pray and what we get. But if you will just follow in directions, that's it. Just follow directions, you will come out on the other side. So they're glorifying their past bondage. And they're not recognizing that they're there because of their prayers. Well, and I, of all the things that would have represented strength of the enemy and the and their slave mentality was Pharaoh. Well, I mean, that's the ultimate. In yes, that. yes. And but how easily we forget mm -hmm. the ten plagues. Mm -hmm. See, that's the thing. 
Signs and wonders don't produce faith. <coughs> See, people don't know that. It will produce faith in an unbeliever to say, okay, there has to be a God. You know, then they're presented with a choice to be born again or not. For the Christian, there's one thing that produces faith, the Word. So that's why it's so easy to go through an, a tremendous miracle and then turn around and forget exactly what you learned. Be blind to the fact that God just got you a house and He's also sending you people, but you feel bad that those people want to help you, right? It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. in it's like, whoa, you just got... Don't send away the very people He's sending because He's your husband. You see what I mean? We very easily don't learn the lessons. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that signs and wonders are for Christians. They are signs that make mm -hmm. us wonder. Therefore, we need to dig into them and say, okay, God, what are you saying in this? What lesson do I need to learn? What, this is a teaching moment. This is a real life parable. So when he does something extravagant in your life, you need to ask him, why did you give me that car? You see what I mean? Why did you do this for me? So these are very important things where we pause and we ask. I have the answer to that. I ask him that again. He, he gave that car to me to teach me a lesson. You know what it was? What? That I possibly couldn't buy it or couldn't earn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why he made or asked you, whatever, to give it to me. That's why you, you wouldn't take my dollar because there was nothing. I was irritated on the dollar. There was nothing. <laughs> I was like, what's this? <laughs> Held it up. But, uh, yeah, there's nothing that, you could do. That was the answer to that. Yeah, and there was no obligation tied to it. There was right. no need to give a dollar. There was no need to say thank you over and over. There was no need to feel any different. Right? That's what he told me. Yeah. It's, oh, the same as salvation. It was the same as mm -hmm. salvation. No way to earn or buy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did, did you all know that? Uh, she put a dollar on the counter I did that for the car. For the title <laughs> thing. Yeah. And I'm I all, thought I had to give it. For the title, that's why Well, it's obviously not a gift <laughs> if you pay me a dollar. <laughs> what is this? Anyway, this is funny. Oh, and then it was, I keep forgetting to tell her. So on me and Mike's anniversary, she would, uh, it was her light cleaning day. And uh, so I, you know, I wrote her checks. And <laughs> so she had left me and Mike a card. <laughs> And I open up, and the checks were torn in pieces. Anyway, I was like, "Thank you, thank you for that. We appreciate it." But uh, <laughs> no, we did. That was oh, I laughed because it's just funny how you do it. You know, it could have been like, "Hey, don't worry about paying. You know, happy anniversary." It's like, no, well, she's got the checks. Already written me a check before. Oh, okay. <laughs> so then we've got you know, this whole situation where they're crying out to the Lord, but they're also complaining to the leader, right? So then it says, so Moses, this is funny, he goes, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. And then the Lord said to Moses, wait a minute. Okay, so Moses just said, fear not, stand firm. Now, one thing I want to point out is Moses had to be taken out of the system. He had to learn the system well enough to see what royalty looked like and running a nation looked like. And then God had to take him out of that system so that he wasn't enslaved by its thought. Okay, so that's why Moses was qualified to lead these people out. 
Yet I'm curious, how did it get from Moses saying, don't fear, and the Lord saying to Moses, why do you cry to me? Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So this is really, really interesting. And like I said, they were drawn to that area for the sole purpose of Pharaoh coming and taking on the Israelites. And it was a it, the battle was the Lord's. It wasn't Moses and the people of God. He was going to bring Egypt to its knees. From that point on, Egypt was never a superpower again. Once God judges a nation, they don't rise back to the top except for two in history. That will be the Roman Empire and Israel. Okay? So, to me, it's, it's funny that God's having to tell him the same thing that he just told the people. Well, what's funny is he turned around and told the people first, and then it's like... Well, like any good Whatever leader. Whatever he said. Any good leader. Yeah. Don't worry. And then yeah. you go, oh my gosh. What? Okay, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? That's what you're supposed to do as a leader. Fake it till sure, you make it. Sure, fine. You know? <laughs> so, anyway. They did it. And then... Uh, I like this where Moses says... The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. In other words, shut up before you run it. That's what Moses is telling them. So anyway, in verse 19, it says, And the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved. He went behind them, because he was in front of them before. He went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a, uh, the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. The waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down, oh, I'm sorry, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove, drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared him, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This happened over and over and over. Okay, so now Moses is like, see? <laughs> Told you. <ya. laughs> you know, we got this thing beat. Shoot. Well, you would think, I mean, personally... I've never seen a sea part 
with water standing on each side of you as walls. And you literally like, you know, oh, there's a dolphin. Oh, look, there's a whale. Oh, look, there's a shark. And you're walking through, and then God tricks the mightiest army and drowns them all and see it. I mean, I think that would be pretty stunning. I don't think I've ever seen a miracle to that level. And you would think that that would be all they would need to know, right? They're good. We don't have any problems from now on. I, I just had to laugh because it, I saw this cartoon just probably the last few days, but the little fish is going to school, and the teacher's like, why were you late? And then, it, you know, the little dots. And he, here he is, the sea's parted, and he's got his head stuck in. He's like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, light for school. And then there's one, there's there's one where I think Moses and is it Peter or someone's fishing, and Moses kept parting the water. <laughs> so you would think that would be it, right? Well, let's look at Exodus fifteen twenty-two through twenty-seven. Then Moses made Israel step out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. Okay, so they're, they're thirsty, guys. The wilderness is wilderness. It's a desert. When they came to Marah, is that how you say it? They could not drink the water because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we going to drink? So he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Okay, did you notice it was a test? And this is right after. They, they're three days, guys, from the parting of the Red Sea. God has already shown that he obviously knows how to manage water supply. And so they're there. They need water. They grumble again. And so now, how did he tie, follow my instructions, I'll put none of the diseases on you because I'm your healer. How did that get tied to the whole process? Well, number one... The bitter waters, you got to understand, when God works with us, He is always prophetic in that Jesus is revealed. Always. Okay? Mary, get this, Mary's name is from Mara. It means bitter. Jesus hung on a tree and made the waters sweet. So He was pointing to the future death of Jesus Christ. Did you ever connect that? <laughs> what? So, <laughs> sorry. Most expressive of everybody. So, he then is saying, if you will do what I say, in other words, take the log, put it in the water, lay hands on that person, make, make mud, put it on his eyes, whatever it is, however he uh, tells you to execute his strategy to get the answer, just do it. And if you believe in Jesus Christ and you do what he says, I will put none of the disease on you. Okay, well, oh, oh, is it, you mean, I thought you said he's not evil. I thought you said he doesn't make people sick. 
Well, it says right there that he puts diseases on people. Again, we need to go back to the original language. See, this is why it's so important. If anything contradicts what Jesus Christ said, even in the Bible, it's a very good clue to you to look in the original language. Because man translated the original language. And they had ideas that they did not understand, and so they did the best they could. So literally what that means in the original language and the intent is that I will not withdraw my hand of protection from you so that the diseases of Egypt or the world come upon you. So it's where obedience equals protection. Disobedience equals disprotection. <laughs> and so it's very important to say, in the word and what he's wanting you to do. Oh, so it does mean that if I'm a Christian and I get sick, that I must have done something wrong. No, that's not what I'm saying. Sometimes it can be, but then you'd have to negate the story of, Lord, why is this man blind from birth? Is it because of his sin or someone else's? No one. No, no, it's no one's fault. The only reason he's blind is I'm here to show the glory of God. So you can't box him in. You always have to be reliant on the Holy Spirit. If you did something wrong and it, uh, that hand of protection is off of you and you got sick, the good news is in Christ, the blood of Jesus makes us whole. Where back then, they probably just died. Right? Okay, so here's another example. Exodus 16, 1 through 8. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which I think is a fitting name. It's between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day, the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. Now they're mad at Aaron. Aaron, you're a problem too. In the wilderness. And the people of Israel said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to our full, you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this entire assembly with hunger. They're glorifying their bondage again. They didn't sit next to full meat pots, nor did they eat bread till they were full. They were slaves. So then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, pay attention, watch, look, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out, gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, to see whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord, not us, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against him. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, the lesson here is obviously, if you start complaining about your leader, you're complaining about the Lord. However, another caveat is, if that leader is, you know, in unrepentant sin, or they're teaching, uh, you know, deceptive doctrine, you don't need to grumble against them, but you definitely need to take action, uh, or get out, you know, so... They're grumbling against the Lord. But they said, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. They are implying that they're going to die by the hand of the Lord in the wilderness. They don't know he's good yet. Okay? So they're assigning to God evil in the midst of a trial. And a lot of people will do that. 
That's why Moses said, be quiet. When you're in a trial, if you don't have anything good to say, just be quiet. Don't say anything, you know? And so that's what he's like, hey, don't assign evil to God when you're in the midst of a trial. That is, that's the Holy Spirit right there. So all of these challenges were designed to reveal God's character to them and train them for war. They couldn't go in as slaves, soft, fearful. Can you imagine the first giant they saw? Well, we do know what they did. They refused to go in. The, your trials are designed specifically and unique to you to get you prepared to do the reason you were born. Okay? And so all of these challenges were for that purpose, but they failed because they didn't recognize how the Lord saw them. And they didn't even know the Lord. But even more importantly, they weren't allowing the things the Lord was trying to teach them to transform them. The miracles weren't doing it. Answered prayer wasn't doing it. And by the way, you can't really technically call it prayer. All you can call it is complaining. Now, the word grumble means to complain, but its first definition, which I thought was interesting, is to lodge or to tarry. I had no idea. Complain and remain, praise and be raised. That's literal. So it shows that if you complain, which is, by the way, a symptom of a mindset of seeing God as unfair and evil, you will find yourself lodging, tarrying, and making your home in the very problem God is delivering you from. You're going to stay in the wilderness. And we know from the Bible the Israelites, Israelites kept complaining and they died in the wilderness except for two. So if we go back to Hebrews 6.10, Paul is addressing not just a Jewish problem of seeing God as unfair or allowing evil in their lives, but he's also addressing the human problem of seeing God as unfair and evil. So Christians might not come out and say how they view God, but we know it's there by some of the doctrines and the teachings and the things they say in the midst of hardship and trials. God is not unfair. He is good all the time. And the sooner you get it, the easier life will be. And you can continue on through the story. I mean, you can look at Exodus more. You can read Numbers more. I mean, it's one thing after another they refuse. But I think I want you to come out with the understanding that, number one, you might be where you are because you prayed. Number two, it is a test and a challenge to prepare you for why you were born. So we definitely don't want to ascribe to God something that is uh, evil. Learning a new normal is very normal when you're first born again. And the time it takes is dependent upon your cooperation and the amount of trauma and wrong ideas about you or about God that you might have. But it shouldn't take you 20 years. That's just weird. You should not be 20 wearing diapers. Okay? You shouldn't need a foof, a pacifier, every time you start crying. Um, and, you know, there is a, a very real danger. I mean, like I said, all of them but two died. So we, we don't want that to happen. Now, the word serve, uh, where it says, he remembers in Hebrews 6.10, he remembers the love you demonstrate as you continually serve his beloved ones for the glory of his name. This is cool, guys. Okay, the word serve is where we get the term deacon. Okay, or deaconess. There were female deaconesses. 
But remember that the original job of the first deacons were uh, to distribute the alms to those in the ecclesia that had need. So this was the main reason there was no lack in the ecclesia, uh, ecclesia according to uh, the book of Acts 2, 40, uh, I think 4 through 46. Now, there's a definite tie to financial work here in that word serve. So now it can mean assistance or help by performing certain duties, but the Greek actually implies financially providing for others. So not only were they facing persecution, their own financial ruin, but their response to it was to give financially to help others that were in need. So he's saying, guys, I know it's tough. You may not be seeing any return on your investment yet in your giving, but if you will hang on and believe, you're going to see that return in this life. Okay, so that's what that verse right there is all about. Verse 10, they, he said, He remembers the love, so giving is love to him, that you demonstrate as you continually serve or help financially his beloved ones for the glory of his name. This is the first Corinthians chapter 9 or 2 Corinthians working believer offering. Okay, so tremendous persecution, financial disaster, and they are financially providing for others. In that place of testing, they're believing God in the contradiction and they're being obedient. Now I've taught you know about the working believer offering many, many times. You can you know get all that background later. But what Paul is saying is that God will never forget the work done for him. Isn't that interesting? He views you being um, a giving person, generous, as a ministry to him. I find that very interesting. But he said, if you give water to someone that's mine that's thirsty, you're giving water to me, right? If you give clothes to someone that's mine that need clothes, you're clothing me. If you visit someone that's mine in prison, you're visiting me in prison. They're like, well, how? You've never been in prison. You know, so he considers it a personal favor when we help uh, his people that are in need. So when you execute the law of generosity, it is a guarantee you will reap financially. Now, this is not a promise based on performance, though. You don't want to just give because you feel obligated. It's you do it because you have faith and you know. It's a statement of fact. It's impossible for God to let them down and not provide for them because a kingdom of law of generosity was executed in the spirit realm for those Hebrews. Now, in Hebrews, and we'll really dive into this later, but chapter 13, verse 5, I want to read out the Amplified. I read this scripture over and over and over and over when Mike was uh, transitioning between jobs because I really needed to feed my spirit years ago when we were probably like in our 20s. And it says, Let your character, your moral essence, your inner nature be free from the love of money. Shun greed and be financially ethical, being content with what you have. For he has said, I love this, I will never, under any circumstances, desert you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support, nor will I in any degree leave you helpless, nor will I forsake you and let you or let you down or relax my hold on you, assuredly not. Now you can dive into the Greek of that. Paul 
was using every form of Greek emphasis he could find to make sure they understood that. Like, you know those weird people, <clears throat> not myself, of course, that they'll send a text messages with like 50 exclamation points? That's what he was doing. It was like, hello! <laughs> okay, so things in life might have changed for the Hebrews due to the persecution, but Paul is encouraging them to not let the desire for the past life cause them to greedily desire to return to that at the expense of believing in Jesus. Because he said, I will never under any circumstance desert you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support, nor will I in any degree leave you helpless, nor will I forsake you or let you down or relax my hold on you, assuredly not. So, it's also impossible for them to remain in a humble financial state because the working believer offering is the key to independent wealth, even in the midst of persecution, or regardless of persecution. So let me read the Passion, then we'll finish up. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11. Here's my point. A stingy sower will reap a meager harvest, but the one who sows from a generous spirit will reap an abundant harvest. Let giving flow from your heart, not from a sense of religious duty. Let it spring up freely because of the joy of giving, all because God loves hilarious generosity. Yet God is more than ready. So can you picture that? He's like, just waiting. Right? Just waiting to do it. He is more than ready to overwhelm you with every form of grace so that you will have more than enough of everything, every moment, and in every way. He will make you overflow with abundance in every good thing you do. Just as the scripture said about the one who trusts in him, now giving is a sign of trust. I hope y'all got that. Because he has sown extravagantly and given to the poor, the one that needs an extra hand, but they're working for a living, right? It's not a beggar there. His kindness and generous deeds will never be forgotten. The generous God who supplies abundant seed for the farmer, which becomes bread for our meals, is even more extravagant towards you. First, he supplies every need plus more. Then he multiplies the seed as you sow it, so that the harvest of your generosity will grow. You will be abundantly enriched in every way as you give generously on every occasion, for when we take your gifts to those in need, it causes many to give thanks to God. Okay, the Greek word for the phrase, have more than enough of everything, is A-U-T-A-R-K-E-I-A. And it's found in the classical Greek as meaning independently wealthy, needing nothing. So the Hebrews had to trust God and not assign to him any unfairness or evil and to trust they had executed the law of generosity and God is not a liar. He's going to do what he says. So let's finish with verses 11 and 12. But we long to see you passionately advance until the end and you find your hope fulfilled. So don't allow your hearts to grow dull or lose your enthusiasm. But follow the example of those who fully received what God has promised because of their strong faith and patient endurance. So Paul knew if they kept going, they were going to have hope fulfilled. Now this isn't referring just to eternal salvation. It's referring to their current conditions getting better. We always assign things to in heaven. It's now. He wants you to enjoy the fullness of life now as well as in the future. So, 
their current conditions were going to not only improve, but they were going to be even better than they were before they believed in Jesus. The word hope, and this is the best definition of, the, of hope you can get, means to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. It will always be better in God. Always. The only time it stops is when you do. And so they had to pass their tests just like the Israelites had theirs in order to take the promised land. And verse 12 holds the key that will ensure if you pass it. And it's the word dull. Don't go dull. Don't grow dull. It's nothros. And it's taken from a word that means illegitimate child. I had no idea. I was thinking like a knife, you know, that's in the drawer, that gets dull and you can't cut anything. But no, it is taken from a word that means illegitimate child. The implication is that if you see a father as unfair or evil, you will interact with him and the world around you as an orphan. Surviving only, distressful of everyone, a chip on your shoulder, bitter. Don't let that orphan mentality infiltrate your heart, causing you to doubt God and his faithfulness. Instead, get this, quote, see yourself as a child of intimacy that keeps our passion or relationship fervent and passionate. That's the rest of the, the uh, Greek definition of this verse. The best way to do that is to follow the example of those who did receive fully what they wanted uh, of God's promises. The Aramaic can be translated because of their faith and the outpouring of the Spirit. That is, I mean, I would put next to the word dull that it literally means illegitimate child. And so an orphan, they have a really rough time, number one, receiving gifts, giving, interacting with people on a level that they bond. Uh, they're typically in survival mode, which means they will do whatever they have to do to get what they want to get, even if that means stepping on someone else, right? So... You don't want to go from a child of God that's enjoying the intimacy with him with passion and fervency to being an illegitimate child because you think that the circumstances you're in are either his fault or, most common, that he could get you out if he wanted to. He's just not doing it. I've heard Christians say that all the time. Well, if God, if God, I mean, God can do anything. He could get me out of this today. Right. But the problem is you. Well, that's not very nice to say to people that have, you know, they're in trials. Actually, it is. Well, yeah, because I've been there and the Lord's like, hey, you know that this trial could end if you would just do what I say. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Okay. Do what he says. And all of a sudden, poof, it's like magic. We're out of it, you know. So, to me, the worst thing you can do is call and pacify people yeah. that they're stuck in situations where if you just cooperate with Holy Spirit, you'll get out of it. That, and they won't pick up their authority either. You feel like you're illegitimate. You don't feel like you deserve That's that. That's good. That mm -hmm. you have that authority because you are an illegitimate child, and they refuse to pick up their authority as a believer, as, yeah. a, as a child of God. The enemy's number one tactic, this is his number one weapon always. You can see it throughout the Bible from the very start when Adam and Eve fell all the way through. His number one thing is he causes you to doubt God's character. Then he causes you to doubt how God sees you. He always does that. 
Then the third one is, he causes you to doubt who you are. It's always, always. God is not who you think he is. You're not who you think you are. And God really didn't say that. I mean, just over and over we see it. So I think the more people can recognize those tactics, and if the minute you think that God is unfair or that he's allowing or that he could get you out or that he did this to you, you need to stop. You got to put that spoke in the will, stop that train of thought, and then like, nope, the word says this. You know? So, and you know, even though the generosity, it flows from a heart that loves to give, the reality is when you sow, you reap. That's different from performance, but you do have a cause and effect, right? So I don't want to negate that, but it's never, I'm going to do this so I get this uh, mentality. But I definitely know that my investing in the working believer offering is more sure than investing in stocks. It's a sure thing. All right, although we do have a stock now. Watching it, seeing what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, adulting lately, you know, it's just how it goes. <laughs> All right, well, Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. And we thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. That it's able to get into those motives, it's able to get into those wrong thought patterns and beliefs that actually are the main problem. The problem is not you. The problem is actually what's between our two ears. The spirit of the mind, it goes even deeper. The brain will one day shut off, but the mind continues. And so I pray, Father, that you continue to expose to us uh, who we are, who you are, how you work, how you operate. But also, Father, that when we find ourselves all of a sudden facing seas and Pharaoh's army behind, that our initial response ceases from being grumbling and complaining. But instead, it's like, you know what? I probably got myself in this situation because I prayed something that I don't even remember now. And just cooperate with you and pass our test. And Father, we know that you are faithful. It is impossible for you to lie. Whatever you have us do that we do in obedience and love for you, whether it's giving, whether it's ministering to other people, whether it's just spending time with you because that's what you like us to do, because you want to be around us, that all of those things equal obedience flowing from a heart of love, which equals reaping. That It's impossible to not reap what we sow, good or bad. And so, Father, we ask that you help us trust you to have the endurance that is needed to press against the challenges, to build the strength that is needed to face our wars when it comes to stepping into our destiny, the very reason we were put on this planet. And Father, this morning, as an act of loyalty, we give you our tithes and offerings. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. 